Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Can you just tell us what life is like in the sand hills of Nebraska? And before you before you answer that, I want to, and I think I've said this, and yes, listeners, yes, we're going to be covering the sand hills basically from now, probably through January, because uh, <laughs> Caleb and I have to gather as much intel as we can on this unique area. And uh, it, it, also, I'm a prairie nerd, and uh, mm-hmm. as they say, the sand hills are the last prairie. Um, I think, uh, the way that Nebraska has taken care of that is, uh, you know, sets the bar for every other state, especially their neighbors. When you look at how modified the landscape is in Iowa or Missouri, or even, I mean, going out to Colorado, you know, when you, when you're in the Denver area, it is, it's weird. Cause you can like see elk you know, as you're driving on the interstates there, but it is so urbanized, you know, and basically from, from Denver to like Vail, you know, is just, it's like basically a, you know, an urban area and, uh, not in Nebraska though. You guys are still wild. And I remember driving through the Sandhills. I've only done it one time in my life. Um, we did it intentionally. Normally we, we would take, let's see, 80, all the way to the Missouri River. And then when we get to the Missouri River, I imagine we hopped on to Highway 71 and took that up to 90, right? Does that sound right? And yep. then or yep. 29, you know, if you went to Sioux City or whatever. Yeah, yep. yeah. And then we'd go, we'd take 90 all the way out to Montana. And, but we were doing a Montana trip when I was like going into my freshman year of high school. And my dad, um, who really is kind of the inspiration for a lot of my natural interests, my dad was like, nah, we're going to take a different route. We're going to go through the sand hills of Nebraska. It's a really unique area, and I, I really want to see it. And when we went through the sand hills, I remember just thinking as a kid, like, where do these people get stuff? <laughs> It is, it is Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. It is in the middle of nowhere, which is a strange thing to say as a kid who grew up in rural, you know, Illinois and Iowa. You know, I thought I knew, I thought I knew what nowhere was, and then uh, going through the sandhills. I mean, can you just kind of describe life in the sandhills, Nate? And it's, I imagine, it's, like you said, Amazon. It's probably changed quite a bit since you were a kid, but oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so um, most people that come through Nebraska see I-80, and they're they're riding that across the southern part of the state. So what the opinion of most people of what they know about Nebraska is it's pretty much like Iowa because that's what <laughs> Nebraska is like. It's it's mm. corn, it's, yep. it's cropland, uh, especially eastern Nebraska, and I-80 coming across going west, you know, it starts to change a little bit about halfway through the state. And then when you get out in western Nebraska, then it's then it, then it starts looking more like eastern Colorado and stuff. But uh, that's the only reason anybody comes across Nebraska is they're driving through on Interstate 80. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, this, 
Nebraska can be way more rural than people ever, and, and not just rural, but remote um, than people ever know about. And now, uh, once you start heading north off of I-80 and kind of northwest, you get into the sand hills, and it is a very, very unique um, geographic. It's just, it's odd. It's it's literally the Sahara covered in grass. Mm. And, um, you know, I t- tell people, you know, our topsoil is two inches thick. And once mm. you get below that topsoil, it is sand, sugar sand. And mm. you can tell people that, but until they come out and start hunting out here and start walking around the sand hills, they're like, holy cow, this is like walking through snow. It's just, it gives way under your foot. It's just sand and it's <laughs> rolling dunes by and large it's treeless but um we've got eastern red cedar encroachment coming up from the south and it's starting to scatter cedars over the sand hills which um some guys are taking care of that issue and some are not but but by and large it is a treeless grassland rolling hills just hill after hill after hill mm-hmm. it all it all kind of looks the same you know that you talk about um History from pioneers coming across and getting lost and getting turned around because it, it it's it's like being in a grass covered Sahara. Mm, <laughs> wow, man, it's it's odd. And and you look around and you're like, what in the world lives out here? Not only people, but like animals. <laughs> it's yeah, like, right. What, what in the world would live out here? And uh, <laughs> it is it's just what what lives out in the hills is a lot different than what you find in the river valleys that go through Nebraska. Um, it's just, you know, the, the Platte river Valley is, is a big one. Mm, yeah. This is a different life source uh, of wildlife there. But, um, uh, so my wife is from Metro Detroit. Uh, we met in college at church and I brought her out here and, uh, it, it's been an adjustment <laughs> for her. Uh, but yeah, she's, she, she has learned to, especially coming through COVID and having kids has yeah. learned of being remote and uh, I still have to get her out of town, you know, every, every couple, couple months, he's like, I, sure. We, we got to go to some stores. I got to go to like, you know, TJ Maxx and go to target. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, and it, you know, our clo- I, I tell people our closest Walmart is two hours away in any direction. You wow. Drive. So, that's good. That's, um, that's crazy. When I, when I was a kid and you'd go school shopping, we'd drive, we'd drive to one of those towns that, you know, is, two hours away and there's there's other towns that are within two hours but none of them are as big as the one i'm in and and valentine is uh 2800 people and it's the biggest town in any direction for two hours so wow um but uh yeah we do we do a lot of ordering (laughs) we order a (laughs) lot of stuff uh but you know when we go out of town and we leave the sand hills and we hit a bigger town with a great bigger a bigger grocery store whatever a walmart you know we take a cooler with us and we stock up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, man. I imagine though there's a certain level of self-sufficiency though that comes with the territory. I mean, uh my wife and I, we lived in a big, well, actually funny enough, you know, Caleb and I have such an interesting story in our friendship. We we were living for years like a couple miles away from each other and didn't even oh, know yeah. each other until we both yep. moved two and a half hours away to, and now we're, you know, 20 minutes away from each other. But, um, uh, we, Caleb and I were living in a big Metro area and, um, now like we still have Walmarts in our towns, but they're much smaller 
And, um, like if you need to go to, uh, say like, a you know, a, a hardware store, like a Home Depot or a Menards or Lowe's Menards, or something, yep. you know, that's an hour drive. And, uh, it, it like was good for us in a way though, that you couldn't just, you know, so easily access this other stuff. It taught you to be better with your planning. Um, you know, yeah. we've, yeah. we've gotten into gardening and we grow a lot of our own produce now. And so I think that remoteness, which is a, I meant to compliment you on using that word because I think that is, that's a, that's a better word than just, you know, middle of nowhere or, or, uh, you know, super <laughs> it <is>. rural. <laughs> <laughs> but remote is like, it's just, it's a really good, it's a really good way to describe that. And, uh, we have a, you know, way more, way more, uh, what's the right word here? Maybe commodities or something like that close by where we're at than where, when, than where you're at sounds like, but still, you know, yeah. we got a little bit of taste of that and I think it's good for us. So do you, do you feel like, um, you know, growing up in that circumstance, like really taught you a lot about self-sufficiency? Yeah. Yeah. You, you do learn to think ahead and think out cause there's no just running, running somewhere to get what you need. I mean, and I don't mean to make Valentine sound like there's nothing like we have two grocery stores <laughs> and we have stuff, but, um, you do, you, you have to think ahead, especially talking about, uh, in the wintertime, we get some nasty, nasty blizzards. Last year was the worst blizzard. I hope I ever lived through. I was telling mm. my dad, this is, this is the worst winter I've ever seen. And my dad is a little over 60. He was like, uh, this is the worst winter I've ever seen. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you do, you, you learn to think ahead, especially, you know, we're in the, we're in the beef business. We mm. have cattle and like, you got to think ahead, especially when storms are rolling in and feeding days out, you know, feeding extra. Cause you know, you're not going to be able to get to them tomorrow and, and whatever. But, uh, yeah, it is, it's, you, you do have to think ahead. A, a lot more um yeah you're just, just super intentional right yeah 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 so an, another thing i was thinking of um and this is this is a good question for caleb and me to hear uh <laughs> we we interviewed another guy who's um done some some uh uh hunting i think every year right caleb he goes out and uh robbie uh, oh, goes yeah. out yeah every year now it's kind of his tradition to hunt muleys out in during the muzzleloader season he's a, a school principal so it's like the only time of year he's got he's got the time to put together a hunting trip and uh he drives from ohio to nebraska every year and he described that um and i hadn't heard anybody else say that as far as it's like walking in sand all the time there's got to be some like good gear hacks for hunting and in terrain like that i mean like footwear yeah uh, what what do we need to keep in mind there for like we, like because we're like rubber boot guys me and me and kent as compared to maybe like a cowboy or a hiking boot <clears throat> yeah sense. well when you look at the sand hills like i said with these rolling hills you look at it and you go that's not that big a deal it's mm -hmm. you know 30 hills 40 foot hills but when it's up 30 foot down 30 foot up 30 foot and it's just constant up and down that's the biggest thing I hear about guys that are coming out here. They're like, mm. boy, we're not physically prepared for this. And, um, and, and it's, it messes with your mind too, because like you come over the next hill thinking about like, what what am I going to see over the hill? And as far as game, it literally could be anything just over the next knob, but it's also the mental part of like, 
oh more hills <laughs> yeah right so, yeah um, but yeah i would say i, I would say uh hiking a good a good walking comfortable shoe because and and probably thick socks protect against blisters because it's it's just up and down up and down and uh that, that'll that'll give that's a, it's a lower body workout for sure yeah yeah and then i imagine does sand just get like into all your gear all the time and everything oh yeah oh yeah you get it gets in your binoculars and anything you're packing it just it gets in everything i i have found that an arrows is the best tool to get it all out <laughs> bring a little air compressor that's good to know <laughs> yeah nice yeah <laughs> No, that's good to know. That's Put it right good through to... your hair. Just, just blow right. it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good little tip there. Maybe bring some uh, little uh, canned, you know, like the little canned air that you use for like a computer or something. Maybe oh, from yeah. blowing out Absolutely. optics or Absolutely. or um, you know, gun barrels <laughs> or muzzleloader barrels, yeah. I should say. Yeah. But Absolutely. in between your toes, all that. Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So now that's, that's really interesting. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the game. Uh, we're going to, you'll notice by the title of this episode, if you're tuning in, we're going to talk about elk in Nebraska. We're not just going to talk about muleys all the time, but we, when we got a local, we gotta, you know, we gotta get some good Intel here. So, uh, a thing that Caleb and I, when we first started planning this out, at least I was, and I think Caleb, you were too, a little bit, we were looking for all these timber draws, almost like we were hunting whitetails. We were looking for like, uh, you know, hillsides that had some of those, that eastern red cedar encroachment. Um, looking for, you know, basically where we would find whitetails if we were shed hunting, you know. And, oh, yeah. and we're kind of finding out that mule deer are not drawn to that like whitetails are. Is that accurate? Yeah, you'll see. I don't. I don't know what it actually is called. We call it buck brush or black brush, but it's a mm. it's a wood brush that grows. Oh, you know, it might grow six foot tall, but they really those mule deer love to camp out in that stuff, and mm. it's kind of sporadic across the hills. It's not like it's everywhere, but you find some of that brush on the backside of a hill out of the wind, which. This time of year, most of our wind is um, coming from the uh, north, northwest. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll find them on the backside of those hills out of the wind in that brush. And that's that's where they really, and, and I'm talking deer, um, really like to really like to hang out. Mule deers and whitetails alike. Will, oh, will really? Stuff. Yeah. I feel like, like that's, I lived in northwest Iowa for about five years. And the wind, it wasn't <laughs> like, it was a constant, you know, it wasn't that we aren't going to have wind today. It was how much, you know, and if it was 10 oh, miles per hour to 15, oh, yeah. it was like barely any. And then right. it was like, you know, are we going to have the, are we going to be over 20 or under 20 today? If it's under 20, it's a pretty calm day. Is that pretty hmm. much what you experienced there? Absolutely nailed it. Like we always have like at least 10 mile an hour. So in my mind, 10 mile an hour is nothing. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that's just, that's just what we live in. And, uh, uh, yeah, my, that's my marker too, is, is the 20 mile per hour mark. Like yeah. when you hit that 20 mile per hour mark, now we're starting to, you know, kind of change how we think. And, and it is not rare to have, uh, you know, uh, just a steady 30 mile an hour wind. Oh, so, that's crazy. You know, I think Robbie was saying that, wasn't he, Caleb? Robbie was telling us, be prepared for the wind. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, 
at that point, it's like, uh, you know, as I think about this hunt, a lot of times you want to keep it the wind in your favor, but I'm more like, I, we got to crosswind the heck out of these deer <laughs> as best we can or something. Yeah. Well, and it is, and I didn't grow up. And, and part of this is like, <clears throat> it's just how I was taught to hunt, but, um, we do very little for scent hover. Uh, mm, we don't sure. like we, we, it doesn't matter what we're hunting. We're playing the wind all the time. Like I don't yep. even, I don't even mess with trying to cover it up. Just mm-hmm. you're all playing the wind, whether that's calling coyotes or hunting deer, it doesn't matter. It's that, but that's, you know, that's, that's me personally. But, um, but I think that's partly because the wind is always blowing. It's pretty hard to cover it up. Um, mm-hmm. you play that wind, right. But yeah, well, yeah. I think Caleb, weren't you and I having this conversation the other day about scent control? I think it was you and me, maybe it was me and, uh, my brother, Jake, I can't remember, but we, whoever I was talking with that, that was basically the same thing. It's like, number one is the wind. Like you, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, a good friend of mine, Noel Gandy, who's been on this podcast many times. Noel likes to say the wind is your friend in his crazy mm-hmm. Mississippi oh, accent. Um, and, uh, uh, after that though, yeah, I mean, I think you can help your odds with doing, you know, some cover scents or, you know, showering with scent free instead of coconut melon, you know, shampoo, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and all that stuff. Like, I think it helps, but, um, you're like, let's say if a deer walked up to you and you were perfectly camouflaged, they're still going to smell you as a human even with all that stuff and in, in play, you know, the, the yeah. wind is just by far number one. So I, I totally agree with that. That's, yeah. that's good insight. Well, and but. I, I know a lot of people, you know, come and get discouraged and for one, cause it's exhausting when the wind's mm-hmm. always blowing. It does. It takes it out of you. But, uh, I, I agree with the, the statement of like the wind is your friend. Yeah. I, it doesn't discourage me at all. It, you, you play it right. It's going to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good insight for sure. So, uh, now muleys and whitetails, they kind of share that same space, but if it's like true river bottom, are you going to find any muleys there? Is that going to be all like timber? You will. Okay. You will. Um, it's not, yeah, you will, especially you get into the rut. They're going to do what they're going to do. Um, but, uh, especially if you're talking, Oh, okay. So the Niobrara River is very is very wooded. It, it, uh, I looked it up one time. I think it's as far west or uh, far east as the Ponderosa pines come. So okay. that's what we have for pine trees out here. It's all Ponderosa. Beautiful. Um, and uh, that's what the Niobrara River, which is a bigger valley, um, it is covered up in cedars and Ponderosa and also hardwoods down in the bottom and stuff. But uh, there's a lot of these rivers that <clears throat> flow through uh, the sand hills are treeless and hmm. they, they you're going to find mule deer there too you know sure but uh, that's <clears throat> that that's been my experience especially when you get into the rut and I, I hunt a lot of the river bottoms um that are covered up in trees and you might see a mule deer wander down there every once in a while but they're passing through because those muleys just keep them worked out or the, the white tails keep the muleys worked out mm. you know so, mm-hmm. but uh yeah yeah, that's that's good insight. We need we need all this information. It helps us. Uh, we actually have a document where we like 
post articles and stuff that we find and and uh, just little tips and gear hacks and stuff. So we'll be adding some of this conversation to that document for sure. And, Absolutely. Uh, we'll probably be on the way out there just re-listening to all these interviews we've done with people who have the the experience out there. But uh, it's it's uh, it's it's fun to talk about. Now the rut for mule deer is that pretty much the same as whitetails and. You're a similar latitude to us, so I'm guessing it's probably November time frame. Yes. Yeah. You know, it'll it, depending on the season, it can fluctuate by a week or even two weeks in my in my experience here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, they 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 pretty much overlap. But um, yeah, you'll it, it'll get kicked off here sometimes the very last week of October, but it usually is. So our our rifle season, which kicks off pretty close to that november 11th it's always on a saturday mm-hmm. um it's close to that november 11th november 14th and we're usually getting to enjoy a, a solid week if not two of our of our rifle season right in the run but <clears throat> wow sometimes you're just catching the tail end of it into that into that rifle season mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's that's good to know and then you know this is this won't because we're doing a muzzleloader hunt so Rut activity is oh, sure. not not going to be a uh, yeah. a major you know part of our plan. I mean, I'm sure there can still be some rut activity on late you know does and stuff like that. But but um, well, and my you, my I personally I love muzzleloader season, and it, it occurred to me, um, oh I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was looking around our trophy room and the deer on the wall, and was noticing that. Uh, half the bucks on the wall were muzzleloader bucks. Oh, really? And, uh, I, I think that is just a lot because those, those old smart deer are really nocturnal until they absolutely have to be. And by the Mm. time we get in December, it's cold and the days are short and you can, you can pull a fast one on a buck that just has to be out there. Cause that's been, I, I, I told Nebraska is pretty unique in that our rifle season is uh, is uh, during a good portion of the rut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told Dad a couple of years ago that I was like, "Man, this hunting this rut is it's great. Don't get me wrong, but it's not always all that it's chalked up to be because mm. those old smart bucks, the big bucks you're after, are they they don't always play right even during the rut, and right. it takes those." cold nights and those short days to get those to come out in daylight and mm. uh yeah we, we've killed a lot of muzzleloader bucks in december that's, sure. yeah that's great to know that lines yeah, up that makes with sense we've we've kind of been talking about i mean we, back to sheds right like the um can't we've talked about i mean i don't know so many things we've we could talk about on that but yeah, um, run with it, man. That's, well, that's even the point with, of the podcast. The, Long the form communication, thing. Caleb. Right. Even when, when we it. talk about, like, we, you know, you find a, a uh, the theory of a four year old typically, or some in some, most cases, is going to look bigger when he's four because he's running harder, take a step down to five. And then at six, he blows back up again because he's, it's, he's not running as hard at five. He's a little smarter. And then yeah. I actually saw it. Shout out to Jake Hofer. But uh, on their their most recent whitetail cribs, the guy that uh, they went, he shot like three or four 200-inch deer wow. or something, whitetails. And they're going through his, his trophy room. And I think 
almost every single one was a muzzleloader buck in Iowa, late muzzleloader. Really? Kind of to your point, Nate, just that, and he was like, yeah, I don't really care much for the right. He didn't expound any further, but I think there's something to that as far as, you know, if you, you know, you, you see those high pressure, bright, sunny days, they're the coldest guys are always running to the woods late muzzleloader season. Cause I think to just play into that further, those mature bucks, they're like, this is the coldest day, but it's also sunny. So I can kind of get out there and find some food finally in daylight. Yeah. And it, it's warmth. like a perfect opportunity to, yeah, you get warmth of the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That's just interesting as I'm hearing that I'm piecing some of these little different things together and we, um, cause yeah, there's just, just an interesting thought there with you. You mentioned that. Well, and me, and me personally, I, I really enjoy muzzleloader season because things have chilled out. And again, hunting the rut is great and it's a lot of fun. But for me, it's frustrating because you do all this intel and you get everything patterned and you know what it's doing. <laughs> and then the rut happens. And yep. all of that is basically useless. Yeah. Like yep. the, the bucks you've been seeing are gone. Right. And, um, and then you're, you're seeing new bucks that you've never seen before, which is that can be exciting and fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, and and don't get me wrong I'll, I'll, i will always hunt rifle season uh, we love rifle season but um but yeah that muzzleloader season is really underrated yeah my small yeah. permission pieces here that's why because you never know what's going to come through the little block of four four you know yep. four acres of timber or whatever <laughs> i've got permission on so um i'm food wise that's always a key factor then right late season or, or in that in that time frame and yeah, I mean, like how how big of I mean, this is just curious because a lot of times the the whitetail way in Iowa is a plant of food plots and such. How big of a food plot would we need to pull in deer? You know what I mean? Like for like a mule deer, like you got to plant like a you know ten acre giant food plot to pull deer in type of thing because they just kind of roam, right? That is a good question because out here in this part of Nebraska, people don't really do food plots. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for for one, it's it's huge swaths of land. Mm-hmm. So you're really that concerned trying to pull something off of the neighbor, you know, like every, everybody's just sitting on so much land that I don't at all worry about competition from neighboring hunters. And that's a, that's a, that's a private land luxury, but it's not just, you know, small acreages. There, mm-hmm. These are big places. Uh, out here in the sand hills, the average ranch size, and this is average ranch size is 15,000 acres. Oh my. Wow. So you're just, people don't, people do not mess with food plots mm. out here. And mule deer more specifically, I've had guys that, you know, um, you can bait in Nebraska. You cannot hunt over your bait, but you okay. can, you, you and your target have to be 200 yards away from your bait. So um, you, you can bait right in through seasons. But anyway, um, I've, I've had guys that, that try and bait mule deer with different stuff. Alpha alpha bales is honestly the best thing I've seen, but mule deer don't seem to give a rip about, um, mineral sites, corn Mm -hmm. piles. They don't care about that stuff. Hmm. And I I have, I have seen very little success of guys that are trying to pull them in because they're, they're grazers. They're just, just roam and they graze, and that's one area they're a lot different than a whitetail because I yeah. use I use mineral sites as part of our as just part of our management herd management. I don't do food plots um, for one. I just uh, I've got a lot to do. I don't want to I don't want to farm food plots too. But that's <laughs> yeah. that's, that's me. Um, 
but I, and two, it's not, there are, there is cropland in the sand hills. It's, it's not ideal because it's sand, but mm-hmm. um, there, there, there is irrigation out here. And uh, when you start getting into December, that's where pretty much everything, whoops, sorry about that. That's pretty much where everything flocks to um, is uh, your alfalfa fields, hmm. um, which there's a lot of those out here. It's, it's a little bit of corn and alfalfa, a little bit of soybean, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of guys are growing alfalfa for, for their cattle. And that's where everything goes. The antelope, the whitetail, the mule deer, the elk. That's where they all go when things get hard in the wintertime. So mm. um, I, I hug those properties, you know, like especially if you're talking about hunting public land, which there's not much of in Nebraska. Uh, mm-hmm. What's on the outskirts of that public land, a lot of times you'll find cropland, um, alfalfa mm-hmm. fields. And I know that's that's the strategy is to hug those. That's, <laughs> that's what they're going. Get that uh, fence line for yeah, in I mean, between. That's, that's like season, you know, that's that's December, like I said. Yeah. Everything kind of starts migrating that way, but but yeah, they're there, that mule deer, they just don't seem to care about the same things that whitetail care about. So yeah, no, that's 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 uh, good to know, and it's fun to see the comparison. Now, one question I did have going back to the rut. I know we're going back in time here a little bit in the conversation, but you know, when you're hunting whitetails during the rut, it, it's it's like critically important to get downwind of doe bedding areas. If you mm-hmm. get downwind of doe bedding areas, I mean, if it's a big enough piece of habitat, uh, the I've I've tried to describe it. Um, it's kind of like uh like uh a zombie movie or you know like a res- <laughs> like a like a like a resident evil type situation. You, know, you got all these zombies like kind of like just you know floating around doing their own thing and like generally you know the, the zombies of course are moving towards the the uh, warm blooded humans but but uh it, Last year, I had like a true, you know, this is the first gen hunter podcast. I haven't been hunting for all that long. But last year was my my first like major rut experience. I've had I've had some of it in the past for sure, but but last year it was just crazy. It was the uh, the timber I was in was just absolutely loaded with deer, and it was like you had all these bucks that were just kind of like walking loops, you know. And all around you. I mean, just, I think I saw probably five different bucks within 30 minutes of putting up a, a tree stand. Like I, I set up a new tree stand downwind to this doe bedding. And within 30 minutes I had a shot, but in the, also in that 30 minutes, there were literally five different bucks that walked past my stand. And is it like that with mule deer? Like do people try and get downwind of, doe, you know, like identify a doe bedding area and then ju- you just hunt downwind and those mule deer are, are like the whitetails where they're just roving around? Or, you know, you've kind of described them as a little bit more of an aloof animal than, than whitetails. They're not so, you know. Yeah, that's – and it, it's <clears throat> not to say that you can't pattern muleys because you, you absolutely can pattern them. But yeah, they, I mean, the miles that a mule deer will put on because they just take off and just graze as they're walking. And it might be a loop that they're making, but mm-hmm. they're just, they're, they're like the turkeys out here. They get 
it out a bit and they just take off walking and graze and walk and graze and they're just on the move and they'll they'll bed down you know midday just like a whitetail will but um they they've they put on a lot of miles it's it's <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's 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 really uh really interesting but well we got to stop talking about deer here because we got to get to the <laughs> we got to get to the title of this episode and uh that is nebraska elk and i've told I don't know, three, four people. And I announced it on our last podcast that this episode was coming up because that's how excited, that's how excited about it. I am because it's such a unique thing to be discussing elk in Nebraska. And, and, uh, I was actually sitting with, um, you guys might know, uh, the quote unquote, John, who's been on this podcast before he is a, uh, uh, all I'm allowed to say is a special forces sniper. He's uh, active duty, which um, uh, we're going to have him back on soon for uh, kind of a big announcement. But um, uh, I was having breakfast with him before work one morning, and Nate sent me this message on Go Wild. And he's like, hey, man, uh, I filled my tag, and here's this giant bull, and... It was so strange because it's a beautiful bull in a soybean field. Soybean field. <laughs> it was like oh, these two things. Yeah. These two things. You never see them together. You know, like you think of you think of a Montana elk or a Colorado elk or right. you know even go down southwest a little bit and go to Utah, or Arizona, and it's all you know like the the same five pictures, right? You know beautiful animal some kind of scrubby either alpine or or uh you know deserty shrubland habitat right but here's this picture of this giant bull in a standing soybean field and i love that it was like it was like mixing elk with whitetail hunting it was so cool and uh you know it just was a reminder that elk are way more diverse than we understand them to be in modern context. Like Iowa, for instance, had more elk than bison. You know, most people are like, oh yeah, Iowa was a prairie state. It had lots of bison around. Yes, we had, you know, definitely bison were here, but not as prevalent as elk. Elk are a grassland species. And when you kind of think about where they exist in that context anymore nebraska's kind of mostly it you know of course you would find examples of it in like oregon or in in montana and uh you know some of those states that do still have some prairie we'd we'd find examples of it but but as far as like the true extreme you know i think nebraska is probably it would you agree with that nate yeah it is it, it's really different just because uh, people for one, Nebraska's flyover state. People don't spend a lot of time thinking about Nebraska, and that's, I'm fine with that. It's a it's a welcome secret. <laughs> I like that. That's, um, yep, that's good. But uh, yeah, it, it is really weird to think about elk being here, and they're just. And I'm sure this is Nebraska is the only state I've hunted elk in, and uh, this is probably true of other places too. But they're they're so big, big bodied, mm-hmm. and you you'd think you'd see them all the time they got to be the most elusive creature that exists Mm. out here i mean you 
they're there, but you just don't ever see them. They are statewide now. Um, we've got hunting units uh, across the entire state. Oh, really? That's they are less prevalent the further east you go. The units get big out east because there's just, there's just less of them out there. But there mm-hmm. are there are elk statewide. Most of them are you know kind of the the, the midpoint that as far as east to west, the middle of the state to um, the, the west. But uh, there, I was reading the other day that um that elk have been in nebraska since the 1960s that that's when they started showing back up again okay now um some of that i believe i think our i think our game and parks might deny this i don't know maybe they wouldn't but um they have re i believe they have reintroduced them they've they've helped them along um we do get we do get game that wanders in from colorado and wyoming um seems like once every few years you hear about in the news a moose that's wandered uh this direction and just just this summer there was an article about a town in western nebraska that they'd spotted a moose and had pictures of and stuff so um i can believe that elk have migrated in back in from the west um Mm -hmm. that makes they've in my opinion they've also had to have been helped a little bit and reintroduced which i'm fine with um yeah but all of that to say, since the 80s and 90s, the populations have absolutely blown up, and hmm. they are they are thick. And um, we've got our we've got kind of our what have become. I don't know if they're labeled as this, but they've become trophy units where everybody knows like this unit has a lot of big bulls. This unit also has a lot of big bulls. Whatever, but. Um, they are out here where, where I'm at. My hunt did not happen here um, at, uh, where I live. I went in southern Nebraska. Um, got the privilege to hunt on a landowner's permit, uh, which is a huge blessing. But the ranch that my dad grew up on is two hours south of here. Hmm. And that, that ranch is still in the family. It's uh, it's in the hands of my um, my uncle and my cousin now are on that place. But I'm Very still cool. in landowner permits so that's where i drew my tag which is why i was able to bag mine on a soybean field because you get down there in southern <laughs> nebraska a lot more cropland a lot of sure. corn that's crazy a lot, lot of soybeans so that's where i was hunting specifically the, the geography of the area is just perfect for elk because it's canyon country mm. um mm, nice it, You've got canyons that are absolutely ate up with red cedar, which is perfect bedding for them. And then you get up on the flats out of the canyon and you've got corn and soybean. So Mm. it's the perfect storm of growing big elk fast. And, uh, you know, my dad, uh, when I was a kid, my dad would go out to Colorado and he'd, he'd help guide. My uncle had an outfitting business out there and he would guide, help my uncle guide for a week, you know, every every few years and they're they're guiding elk hunts at 10,000 feet and they're they're packing in on horses and they're setting up camp for a whole week and all of that and i know my dad has said like elk will absolutely and i'm talking antlers will absolutely put on as big a rack in colorado they just need more time to do it because they don't have the corn and the soybean that's driving yeah, that. sure. yeah. so yeah, right um in my experience what i've seen uh, I've seen elk that are putting on the same kind of rack as a 10 year old elk in Colorado as, wow. you know, in five years, a five year old, wow. five, six. So, um, 
it's it's really the perfect storm and the perfect situation down where I was hunting to to find just huge elk because they've mm-hmm. got the great canyons for cover and then they've got just amazing groceries to put on mm-hmm. not just big racks but massive bodies and mm-hmm. uh uh like I got I got uh around 500 pounds of meat off my own wow. whoa um that's insane there was a guy and I, and I shot a I shot a young elk um that my elk was like wow. uh, was like three and uh and still there was a guy i i took my my elk to be processed at a, at a local place that to have him butchered and packaged and everything there was an elk hanging in there next to mine that um hanging weight was 650 like Whoa. i mean you're, you're talking about a 1200 pound elk on the hoof <laughs> they're they're just That's massive immense. and they're like a corn fat steer they're unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> they're just, they're absolutely unbelievable to eat. Uh, wow. have, that, have that marbled elk meat. Oh, <laughs> good gravy. It's, now, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. But Now, anyway. is another big part of that equation just that these elk are not facing and dealing with the same predators that, like, you know, uh, uh, I mean, not so much Colorado. Like, Colorado, I think that's one of the reasons why they're viewed as a destination elk state is they don't have as of yet the wolf problem you know as far as as far as uh having to survive wolves i'm not saying that wolves are a problem you know i'm i'm fine with wolves being where wolves are from but Mm -hmm. um uh they don't have to deal with those predators and grizzlies you know but in nebraska do you guys have wolves or bears that prey on no bears um no bears at all uh, every once in a while we'll hear about a wolf that has, a lot of it is, um, I don't know, people in agriculture getting excited about things they saw sure. that they probably see. However, we do, we do, um, well, it was like four years ago, I think east of here, 50 miles east of where I live, a rancher killed a wolf on his mm. ranch wow. and, um, it, it was a timber wolf that had wandered down from Minnesota. So, Sure. It, they, but not, but not like packs. No, mm-hmm. we're not having, we're not having the the wolf issues that I've got. I've got a couple cousins that uh, ranch in uh, northern Colorado, and and they talk about the issues that the wolves are causing, not just with wildlife but with cattle. So, so no. To answer your question, every once in a while you'll we'll find a wolf in Nebraska, but it's a lone wolf, and it's not a. They're not an issue. Sure. So, so you're right. That's you're really right. helped with herd stress and you know calf recruitment every year has just got to be very high and then the food like you mentioned you know you're giving those things rocket fuel yeah well and we've got mountain lions and and yeah they do what mountain lions do i i would i would guess that they're living primarily off of deer and turkeys but Mm -hmm. um we've got they just expanded the mountain lion season to my area this year which i'm really excited about oh that's cool but there was a unit in the panhandle. There, there has been a unit in the panhandle of Nebraska for, for a good number of years now. Um, and, it, and it's a, what do they call that? It's a, it's a quota season. So they, they sell a lot of tags. Oh, and one, sure. Mm-hmm. Once they get five lions or whatever, they shut the season off. So 
um, they, uh, they just expanded that east to where I'm at. And it's a really large unit. And uh, it's the, the season is only two cats long. It's once they hit two cats, they shut it off. And once they wow. hit the first female, they shut it off. So our, our entire unit could potentially be one mountain lion. Yeah, you season. know, there's some guy who's got wow. like got a, a cat on trail camera on his uh wow. ranch somewhere yeah. he knows where he's going first yeah. 20 minutes into the season well yeah. and that, that's kind of my situation right now because they they opened it up and uh th- this year um that's that's what i'm going to be trying to do i've got trail cameras set up for him i know we have two two lions living in our six mile stretch of the river that's so awesome um it's we can't use dogs um, okay. until, if I remember right, they've got two seasons. So the first season, the first, the first season, you can't use dogs. Uh, you can't, you can't hardly use anything. And then if the quota doesn't get filled, then they'll open it up to a second season where you can use dogs. So, but around here, not that many people have dogs. So sure. hunting dogs, running dogs, you know. So anyway, mm-hmm. all of that to say is that's really all we have for predators. And it's not like, again, they're statewide. Our mountain lions are statewide in Nebraska, but they're not, they're not so thick. It's not like they're tearing down elk populations. So anyway, I, I, uh, in, in Iowa, like we have on this kind of more Western game conversation, you know, we have actually in Northwest Iowa, moose was located this year. Oh Uh, yeah. In in the city I used to live in, it was like a, a half mile North. And they're tracked, and now it's back and migrating north into into uh, Minnesota. I don't know how to age class a, a moose, but the picture I saw, I would say it's like you know one and one or two year old, like a real young sure. one, barely much going on. It was but, a bull, though, huh? Yeah, it was a bull animals? moose. He just cool. wandered way down. I mean, well, I know now we've got to go looking for sheds. This I know. Spring. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's an elk in uh, <laughs> in like Dallas County, Iowa, this week. Someone got a picture of. Now, but, when that happens, I always wonder. Is it on a ranch? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> coming off somebody's game farm, you know, because yeah. there's a few of those around the state. But oh, sure. Could be, you know, sure. maybe yeah. one. I mean, as Nate said, they're coast to coast in uh, right. Nebraska now. So well, maybe uh, the, crossing over. And the, and yeah. to, the, to the point of like the, the predator game, actually this year I've got two, uh, a buddy of mine, we put out two cameras kind of together, and we got like two bobcats on camera. No mountain lions yet, but I know in uh, like when I lived in Northwest Iowa, there were there was mountain lions, and somebody got one on trail camera. It was spread around town, you know, and whatever. And um, the farmers up that way would always say, "Oh yeah, like they're around, and there's a lot more around than you would think." Like, oh, would you yeah. say would you say that that's the case? Like, like I I assume we've got at least one in this county. Even I mean, I just assume that they're here, but they're so elusive. So elusive. Yeah. That's, that's talk, talk about elk being elusive uh, for as big as they are. It's the only thing I've found here that's more elusive than an elk is a mountain lion. They're there. I cut tracks all the time up and down that river of mountain Mm. lions. Uh, I have, I saw my first one uh, in May and um, it, it was awesome. (laughs) It was at nine o'clock in my headlights down on river ranch. And, uh, it was, it had a collar on, which is one that I got to be a part of, um, 
coloring a couple years ago. That's uh, cool. So I guess I guess it wasn't the first one I've seen in the wild. That sure. was the first one I was helping the game in parks. We were a whole project uh, podcast for another day. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm sure it was that female because this this cat that I saw had a had a big collar on and had a fawn hanging out of her mouth in May. And I wow. Was like, Oh, oh, is... I was like, oh, you dirty rip like this. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Mountain lions do what mountain lions do. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us the story. This, this is the beauty of long form communication. We get to go into the weeds a little. Tell us the story on collaring that cat. I, well, I'm oh, interested yeah. too about yeah. the range. Like, do they, do you, have you gotten feedback too as you get into it of how, where, what the range yeah. of that thing is? Huge range, and I'll, 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 I can tell you that as a part of the story. Uh, so um, two years ago, um, two years ago, almost exactly, they they collared the first cat, the first mountain lions in this area. Um, they collared a female and three cubs, uh, thirty miles west of where I live, and then they also here within ten miles they collared a second female with two cubs. Mm. So what is that? Three and four, there's seven. So two years ago, they collared seven mountain lions in this area. Mm. Um, and they, they kind of watched them. They collared them in, in November, February after they called or after they collared them, they called us and there's kind mm. of us three, three of us neighbors along this specific stretch of the river. And they said, we know this female is, in your stretch and she has one of her cubs with her and uh the cub is outgrowing its collar we need to recapture it and adjust its collar Hmm. and uh and so we were like yeah you know that's that's fine so gimpars came out and they showed us on gps right where this cat was at it was like at this point it was like noon and they were like at 8 a.m this is where she was it happens to be in a pasture that belongs to our neighbor that we lease in the summertime. So mm. it's, it's a really deep part of the Canyon, uh, really rough, really woolly with lots of trees. And I was trying to explain to them, yep, you take this, this road up over this Ridge and down and this, and they were just kind of dumbfounded. They're like, we're never going to find her just wandering around. So um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know, you know, it's mountain lion deals, kind of a cagey subject around here. And I didn't know if Game and Parks would let me go along. I didn't want to ask. And uh, they uh, and finally, I was just like, I can take you right to this spot if you'll let me come. And they were like, Oh yes, please, would you please come? <laughs> and uh, and say no more. In, yeah. <laughs> so they uh, they brought in a couple guys that were within an hour uh, of Valentine, and uh, that had that had coon dogs, which again dogs like that are are rare around here. People just don't use hunting dogs like that. So they, they brought in a couple of these guys that had these dogs and they said, just take us to this GPS spot. And that's where we're going to cut the dogs loose. And uh, so we did, and that was in February and we uh, right away, right away, these dogs pick up this trail and they, they go to town doing what they do and they tree this first cat. And it's, uh, it was the, the, the mother cat, the female cat. We didn't need her. So it was, it was really cool. Got to treat her, watch that, watch her sit in the tree, you know, 15 foot over our head. And, and uh, we just walked away from her, didn't need her. So we, uh, dogs got on the, the trail of the kitten, which I'm calling it a kitten, uh, but it was a hundred pound male. And uh, they, uh, dogs did their thing and they treed, treed this kitten. 
and uh, they tranquilized it. Cat come out of the tree and uh, within 200 yards went to sleep and they did their thing. And you know, we're also, while they were adjusting the collar, we're taking some stats on the cat and whatever. And they, it, it was, it, I wish, um, I feel like game and parks across states and just don't necessarily have the best reputation. And uh, yeah. my, I, I gained a lot of respect for ours because hmm. it was, it was our state, um, uh, mountain lion wildlife biologist. It was our local biologist. And it was also another regional one from Western Nebraska came out and helped. So it was those three guys plus one or two others. So it was basically a team of five that were doing this and me and a couple others that locals that got to tag along. And when they got this cat down, and tranquilized and started to go in town they flipped me a clipboard and a pen and they said start writing down what we tell you and totally got to participate in this whole period and they were taking taking teeth measurements and all this different kind of stuff and and i got to take pictures and that was the other thing like i wanted to take pictures but again i was like this is (laughs) kind of a polarizing subject around here are they gonna let me and they were like, yeah, absolutely take pictures. Like how often do you get to do something like this? Take pictures. Yeah. And like, right. they, they like pose with this, this tranquilized mountain lion and take <laughs> pictures with it and stuff. And he's uh, like putting his finger in his mouth and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> putting the claw on your throat. It was super cool. It was yeah. Just, I definitely want to see those. It was for the sure. neatest experience, but Wow. We did our thing over a few hours, you know, of, of chasing it, tranquilizing it, all of that stuff. Six months later, that male kitten got picked up in Springfield, Illinois. <laughs> and they transported Whoa. it further onto his sanctuary in Indiana. Wow. So that, that that male kitten that we messed with that day um, is is in is in Indiana and in a sanctuary there, kind of a protected oh, place. But in man. six months, it made yeah. it to Springfield, Illinois. And you think about the rivers that it had to cross, the traffic that it had to get through. Yeah. That's how far it made it. And I figured it up. That's like three miles a day on average that it covered. Wow. Time. So one of the things that I learned about the whole mountain lion deal is that the mountain lions, they're, they're big scaredy cats. Uh, they, mm. they want nothing to do with humanity at all. And there are, there are the YouTube videos out there of joggers, you know, getting attacked or whatever, but those cases are so incredibly rare that, mm. uh, the, these, they said, they, they told me that the number one issue with keeping mountain lions alive is other mountain lions. And that's mm-hmm. why male cubs have to get out and leave is because they said if if they cross the path with another tomcat, sure, they will get killed. They said mm. the, st- the statistics on them surviving is incredibly low. That if a if a tomcat finds them, he will kill these cats, wow. and it's the biggest reason why these cats just they're not all over the place. You know, I agree with your point that there are way more in the area than, than you think there are. Um, but, um, they have to get out and leave and find their own country. And, and it can take two to three years for them to be able to establish their new territory. It wasn't that long ago. I don't remember 10 years ago, maybe there was a story about a mountain lion in the black Hills out by rapid city, South Dakota, that was mm. taller and made it all the way to, to the, uh, Eastern UP of Michigan, you know? So, <laughs> wow. like, 
yeah. they they go a long ways to cover to to find a new home and and most of the time they don't survive. But well, yeah. it made me think when you said he made it to Springfield, I was like, I wonder if there's that many if he's crossing that paths of, of that many more toms. You know, the, yeah, of the cats that be, he yeah. is, is is that what he's continually finding, put he's yeah pushing him out of that a hard that time. Range. Yeah, having a hard time establishing his spot. Sure, sure, and it, yeah, yeah. And it makes me wonder it, how many are in it, Iowa. <laughs> yeah, like a, right. Like how like if, exactly. he, if he went totally through our state and didn't, didn't even blink, he's well, like, "Yep, the, I'm out of here." <laughs> the, you know, the, there have been since since I was little, there were stories about sightings and stuff, and you, you'd hear about deer hunters that found a deer that was a drug five six foot up in a tree mm-hmm. and was found and the only thing around here big enough to do i mean bobcats can't do that mm-hmm. um, no. the only thing big to do that is a mountain lion so there was always this folklore of 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 mountain lions we've got mountain lions and people jogging down by the parks and i saw one but uh, until we got trail cams like it was all kind mm-hmm. of folklore and then we got and then trail cams came on the scene in the 90s you know and everybody was like okay we now have proof that no one's yes. doing anymore yep uh, that we've got mountain lions but, wow. yep yeah, it's uh, it is fascinating to think about that. There's a great book called Path of the Puma, written by uh, actually a native Iowan, Caleb. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Williams is his name. <clears throat> I've read a big chunk of it, but I have not finished it. Um, <clears throat> and that's what he did. He spent his whole like thirty some years of his career out in Montana as kind of the uh, cougar research biologist <clears throat> yeah and he so he was the one with like the little you know transponder that would pick up on those radio collar signals and he'd go and try and relocate those animals every few years you know maybe to to try and trank them and put new batteries in their hmm. collar get new data on them that kind of thing and he said there were times where he could tell on his transponder that he was right next to this cat and he could not find it. Like, oh, yeah. like oh, it yeah. was, he was basically on top of the thing and it just stayed that well hidden, you know, in a tree wow. behind some rocks, you know, and, and he'd try and find him. And, and he said that also kept him from ever being afraid of being attacked because it's like, this cat could so easily kill me right now and it wants nothing to do with me. It, it's trying to, to stay yeah. hidden, you know, and, mm. and, uh, yeah. you know, they, they're just so elusive, but that's also what makes it so incredibly cool for those people who are lucky enough to see them. You know, it's like, mm. yeah. Seeing probably one of the hardest, hardest to see critters in our country, you know, if not yeah. the, the, most difficult. So I had yeah, a cousin really cool. uh, eight years ago bought one of the tags for that <clears throat> unit. And uh, he was a teacher, you know, didn't have a lot, didn't have a lot of time to hunt, but picked up, mm-hmm. they were selling them. It had to be an absolute cash cow for the state. Cause they were selling the tags for like 15 bucks and they were mm. selling them to everybody. So yeah. anyway, everybody kind of bought one just to have in their pocket. Yeah. And uh, my cousin uh, bought one and had it, had a day. He took off a day from school and, had a buddy that could take him hunting and they drove drove out in this pasture in these canyons and and he was like uh well there's a mountain lion right there and he stepped out and shot it like, no way <laughs> <laughs> no. 
he went to check it in and uh they were like okay you know how long have you been hunting and he he said uh about 30 minutes <laughs> and, and he said well yeah we know you hunted that long today but how many days you know have you hunted up until this point that i have 30, 30 minutes that's how long i had it <laughs> at the time like you know, they just frown at him <laughs> like we're not like nebraskans aren't mountain lion hunters you know There's, right yeah that's a big deal you get out in the rockies that's a big deal but here we're not like it's not like anybody's experienced doing it and it all like he didn't realize how lucky he was until like oh, years years later of realizing how unbelievably rare it is to just walk out there and stumble across one and, and kill it. Yeah. <laughs> what tree was he tied to? That's probably the next question. Right? Which, which tree did you have him chained to for this? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, no, that's yeah. that's awesome, man. What a what I love hearing. You know, it's great hearing the stories where someone like tactically put together the best hunt plan ever. But then it's also awesome hearing the stories. <laughs> oh, there's one. <laughs> You mean so like that one over hate, there? Hate that guy so much. Yeah. They're they, just like, yeah. you gotta be kidding me, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. the guy who smokes a c- cigarette in his uh his uh, tree stand and he shoots, you know, a two hundred inch buck. Oh, you man. know, like yep. he's wearing like, blue jeans. That, uh, there's, I think there's three three books in the series, but it's the legendary white tails book that have have the book of all these trophy white tail across the country, all their stats. And the hunting story. And I swear, 10% of these stories are people that were like, I just went out one day and killed this deer. Or yep. it's like some 14-year-old kid that was like, I borrowed a gun and went and sat in this, you know, 10-acre mm. patch yep. and deer walked back. And they killed the trophy back. Like, yeah. That... <laughs> well, it's kind of like, you know, the first time somebody, like, plays a game, or, you know, like a a board game or maybe a video game or, or even just like shooting basketballs in the driveway, playing like pig or horse or something. And because they don't know what not to do, they just like, they just do everything from the hip. And sometimes, sometimes that works, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, maybe that's part of it. I had a former student, in kansas uh i haven't told you this yet can this is another reason we connect i was i'm also a former teacher so okay uh, awesome but uh i lived in kansas for a couple years and taught high school business but i got a student that uh not much of a deer hunter at all and uh went out and killed this unbelievable non-typical kansas bucket it went number 12 all-time state record whoa (laughs) i was it was like it was his first really deer hunt i mean and I was like, John, just just give up your hunting and take up waterfowl hunting. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Ta- we had that conversation like last week. Kent and I were talking. Yeah. We had talked about that two or three times because you're a friend, right? Yeah. Kent that has that experience. Yeah, and he's not he's not giving up hunting, but he, I mean, he's been hunting his whole life too. But he shot a 205 inch buck or 203 maybe. Um, anything over 200 though, right? Just Holy grail at that point <laughs> shoots, uh, shoots, a 200 plus inch buck. And we were pheasant hunting a few months after he shot that or a month. It must've been a month. Cause it, it was, yeah. Cause he shot it in December and we must've been hunting in January. So pretty fresh after he killed it. And we were just talking about deer hunting a little bit. And he's like, you know, I gotta be honest. In some ways kind of stinks that I killed that thing because now like a good buck to me, you know, when I see a buck that that's like 
really getting my attention, it's got to be a really, really big bug. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like, it's almost like it kind of ruins you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, there's definitely truth to that, you know, but that's the beauty of hunting too, is there's so many like other ways to enjoy it. You know, Caleb and I have a story. I'll leave it up to Caleb if we're going to end up telling it at some point, we're not going to do it in this episode, but, but, um, we've, we've been talking about this because of this story that Caleb and I experienced this past Thursday. Oh yeah. Um, just, uh, we'll, un- tell, we'll tell it sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Just a unique, unique hunting circumstance. And Caleb's like, I probably wouldn't, have, I probably wouldn't have, uh, released that arrow. Uh, if it was any circumstance besides right. right what what we were in and you know that's part of it too is like there's a new when when you find a new wrinkle it like mm-hmm. it extends that you know or last night i almost uh you know got a shot on a buck and i have yet to harvest a deer with my bow as you guys both know um i've come so close i've wounded oh. i think three bucks now unfortunately and and uh, last year I shot a doe, and I'm pretty sure the doe died. We just couldn't recover it because we lost blood. But I think I found it during pheasant well, we, season. And that was we also had that encounter. We had an encounter with a mystery animal, which I yeah, still don't. That, that's still true. Not, yeah, I'm, we may have seen a, a yeah, mountain lion that night. I'm not counting out a mountain lion because that thing. Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. Anyway. Yeah, Caleb. <laughs> Caleb, we were within ten yards of that thing. It was, it was pitch black and standing corn. It was a weird standing we, corn. But had, the wind in our face, and it it was it was a weird smell. Like I was like telling him, like I'm smelling something bad, man. Like it smells weird. <laughs> it smells like a litter then, box. <laughs> it was it was it smelled bad, and I don't know. It was a, it was either a bobcat or a mountain lion, but it was a cat because after its initial jump, it didn't move a stalk of corn. Yeah. Like when, that when was it, when what was away. that that was really weird because, after its initial jump it was just yeah, no if corn it was, moved because corn. i because of doe, that doe i had a complete pass through on her like it was i think it must have just been liver um which is why she went as long as she did but you know a deer is not that's been hit that bad is not gonna you know run through a corn standing cornfield not disturb a stock you know yeah that's that's a cat that's a cat feature there you yeah know, that's a cat yeah. tree that's why i know it was it was a bobcat or a mountain lion and i was i was <laughs> i was i don't even i was walking down the row right at it you know bad idea no hand yeah. <laughs> but anyway but, but yeah so so uh man i'm losing oh i yeah you get you get lucky sometimes or sometimes you shoot the giant but there's other things to get after you know like if you if you strike big on whitetails go chase muleys or or go well chase and i think you just or... mentioned in the last podcast or two that you did about like changing changing how you hunt to increase the mm. increase the challenge yeah and yeah. i think that i think that's a you know a, a great thing that i think people naturally do is well I'll, I'll grab a tool that's a little bit harder and you mentioned the guy that killed that uh, with it with the addle addle yeah oh my god we gotta track that guy down if you're listening to this podcast if you by any way he's from missouri if you know who this guy is you can get me in touch with him i will be forever grateful and i'll be sure to do the podcast justice (laughs) we will we'd love to talk to this guy he just sounds like the coolest story but but another really really awesome story though is this this uh nebraska elk that you tagged so we got to hear the story man mm-hmm. you got the tag through a landowner permit um yeah. what about like are there other 
is that pretty much the only way right now to get an elk tag in Nebraska or are there like some limited draw options or maybe even some over the counter in the really population dense areas, Do you so, know, off the top of your head? I do. So, so here's, here's how it works. I'm about to disappoint a lot of the listeners because as of right now, <laughs> the elk hunts in Nebraska are closed to non-residents. Hmm. So this is a resident thing. Really. They, they do issue, I think one, pure lottery tag to a non-resident it might be two but i know it's for sure at least one um Mm. they issue and it's pure lottery to a non-resident so um Mm -hmm. and uh but but for residents this is how it works so if you are not a landowner uh you your uh draw is a uh is a uh, um what are they called as a bonus point system Okay. So bonus point system, you know, it's basically like number of times that your name is in the hat. Mm-hmm. Landowners work off a preference point system. So the people with the most points draw. So that's, that's what I was dealing with um, is the preference point deal. It took me, this was my fourth year of putting in to draw my bull tag. Now wow. you can also, um, landowners and non-landowners too can draw cow tags um but for me the first year i put in for uh for the bull tag i preferenced my bull tag first and then my second choice i put in a cow uh, put in for a cow tag so if you draw your cow tag it does not affect how many points you have towards your bull tag so the first first year i put in i drew a cow tag and i I went on a, that was my first elk hunt, um, and, uh, went down same place where I hunted, uh, for this bull. I mean, the way the crow flies, I was probably within two mile, mile, mile to two miles of where I, I killed each or, you know, hunted the cow tag oh, and nice. hunted the cow and, and killed my bull. I did not fill my cow tag. So, um, hmm. and part of that plays into, into my hunt story is that, um, went down there to fill my cow tag and had dad with me as kind of my guide since it's his, his home place. He knows the land and he's what I would consider an uh, experienced elk hunter. Mm -hmm. He guided me. We got on a herd of 30 or 40 cows and they were at, uh, they were, um, when I took my shot, it was at 330 yards. They, I was hunting with a 30 out six and, um, I, I missed, I just, I clean missed my shot. And, uh, and uh, the situation was we were kind of on a hilltop, a lot of snow. It was December and, um, those elk have eyes and ears like you would not believe. Mm. And we were in a situation over 300 yards away, ridge top to ridge top. And I'm laying down in the snow and we're, we're talking, we're whispering, you know, we're not, not being loud at all. I'm getting comfortable for my shot. And they, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they winded me, if they saw me something, wow. but the dad was saying jigs up, you better get to shooting. And I picked out my cow and I took a shot and I, I missed, and I just, I mm. clean missed. like I shot right under her belly. So, and that was a 330 yards. So that stuck with me. That was, that was, um, four years ago or so, five years mm. ago. And that, that's been hanging with me that I, that I missed that opportunity. And, uh, anyway, years go on. I'm still applying for my bull tag. I finally draw my bull tag and, uh, um, we go down there and I'm trying not to get my hunt, 
my, my hopes up because I'm a hunter. Like I, I know that it's, you know, nothing is a sure thing. My dad has drawn two bull tags and a cow tag. His dad also drew a bull tag. Um, my cow tag that I missed on was on uh, day two of my hunt. So there, there's five accounts all on this same property where a cow or bull was taken within 48 hours of the hunt starting. Hmm. So there, there are so many elk down there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost more of a harvest than a hunt. <laughs> like yeah. it's, sure. it's like, you know, you go down, you, you pick out the nicest one and you shoot it. And, uh, yeah. but anyway, so sounds like I, Michigan. I, yeah, you know, you know same, what though? I, stuff I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. There are a few other States, you know, I think Wisconsin gives out like 15 tags every year. Missouri's, also i think kentucky too yeah and kansas maybe but uh you know i like it like it's easy to have a bad attitude as a non-resident be like you know everyone always complains about iowa that's a non-resident for <laughs> how hard oh. it is to come here and hunt whitetails you know you gotta like what you're saying you gotta wait four or five years for the good units and uh you know, like, and it's expensive, you know, it's basically after everything all said and done, I think you're around seven, 800 bucks just yeah. to get, you know, your, your buck tag for archery season here in Iowa. However, I like it that they defend that for us Iowans, you know, and, and yeah, I feel know, it's, yeah, it's like, you're the taxpayer. You're the person who's willing to live in a very remote area and two hours from Walmart and, and yeah, two, yeah <laughs> live two hours from Walmart. You know, if let's, let's have some perks that just those of us willing to, to be here can enjoy. Yeah. And so I think yeah. it's cool that your state protects that for you. I, I agree. I, I appreciate it too, especially being on this side of things. I really appreciate it. But you know, the result of management like that is there, there's a lot of them and, and, mm-hmm. and you have the opportunity to shoot true trophies. Um, uh, Dad's uh, dad's first bull went in the three fifties. My grandpa's bull three sixties and um, dad's second bull went in the three forties. So man, everything is over 300 inches. It's just, everything is huge. down That's a huge. And, uh, and so anyway, I've got that in the back of my mind that, I'm hoping I can get this done in two days. Everybody else, you know, it's everything. All the other bulls that we've tagged as a family happened within shoot dad's bull that he drew last year. He got in the first nine hours of his hunt, but wow, um, it's, so that was kind of my expectation. It was like, I got, you know, I um, hopefully go down this weekend and find something I'm happy with and, 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 and bring it home. But I had in the back of my mind, like that, that, that cow that I missed at three thirty and, uh, that's just been weighing on me. So first day we get out and uh, kind of have an agree uh, agreement between uh, a f- three or four local ranchers that all neighbor each other is that if you draw a tag, you're welcome to hunt those properties. Nothing's mm, in right. That's just cool. On a, just on a handshake. So nice. it is really, it is really cool. And uh, as my luck would have it, the neighbor that has an amazing property and elk population also drew a tag this year. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he didn't let us come on, which is totally fine. I have no yep. issue with that at all. But um, we sat on that border of his, and it, it was the wildest thing that first day. Um, 
within 30 minutes at probably 500 yards on the neighbor um, was uh, a seven by seven that came out and was just absolute oh, hurt bull. He had, he had four or five cows with him and he was coming our way. Wow. And, and then a six by six showed up and the seven by sevens running a six by six off. And, and then another bull shows up and, the whole time we were just like just just jump that fence you dirty bugger like (laughs) (laughs) come on all you gotta do is jump that fence and it it, you know we got we got into a screaming match with them and we're kind of overlooking again ridge top to ridge top got this big canyon in between us and we're uh um you know we'd we'd bugle and then they wanted fire up and then one when we were sitting there i i like realized at 180 degrees in front of of us there was four elk sounding off wow it wow. was like um it, it was i got some of it on video you can hear him just screaming but we were just getting in a screaming match with him it was it was incredible it was so fun you had and, to feel you had to feel really really lucky to be there oh, you know <laughs> oh yeah well and it's like i said it's just it's weird because like i've grown up it's it's the the ranch that my dad grew up on so it's, yeah grandma still lives there and That's we've so awesome. grown up going there. I haven't hunted that ranch a whole lot because I haven't needed to because I've I've hunted the ranch that I grew up on. Um, I've gone down there a couple times, but I just haven't hunted it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was amazing. I was just sitting there thinking, I've come here my whole life. I've never seen an elk until mm. until you know I drew my cow tag. And then I, yeah. that was the time I saw one there. I was like, it's amazing that they're here. That. It was just, it was mind blowing. I love those <laughs> moments, man. It's just, well, this was the last podcast that just released with Jeb McCollum, where we were talking about hunting the ground that means so much to us, you know, the, our, yeah, our yeah. families. Yeah. It, it, you just, you feel so lucky to be there, you know, like when those incredible moments happen and you're like, I'm in this place that means so much to me and I'm watching this. Right. Man, you right. know, it's like, you just wish you could hit pause. Yeah. It's so, it's so incredible. Yeah, it was, it was and about an hour, hour. Yeah. Probably an hour into our hunt that morning. Sun, sun had come up, you know, and we're sitting there and, um, watching these, watching these bulls and this cow, five, 600 yards do their thing. And dad elbows me and we look over and 40 yards to our direct left is a young five by five, five that just lifts up his head over this edge. <laughs> and it's, you know, that, that's obviously <clears throat> what I was looking for. And, uh, yeah. And again, I, I totally recognize that, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of hunting podcasts and I watch a lot of hunting shows and it's just not the luxury that most guys have to, to get to pass on things. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, but that is, that, that is the blessing that I was afforded. So we, we watched him and he, he kind of, you know, lift his head, sniffed air a little bit and kind of trotted off and, it, it was just really cool. And dad and I are just sitting there giggling about it. Like this is, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, for the rest of that day, we just got to kind of be, you know, be in it and watch it, but that they would never cross that fence. They came within 50 yards across that fence. Oh, and, wow. Uh, but it was, it, it was, it was incredible. But, uh, the wind was wrong for us. The reason we had to hunt this spot, it was actually for our opening morning. It was, it was the second choice for us because, uh, the, the wind wouldn't have worked right in that situation. And so it wasn't even on the top of our list. Dad was like, 
you know, we, we got to, we got to come here just because we have to, because it's kind of our last option and turned out to be the best option to get to see some action and stuff. But, uh, by the end of that day, we went to another spot. Cousin had sent me a picture of trail cam and, uh, that morning, great, great big six by six heavy, just mm. to that walk by his trail camera. And he said, Hey, you need to get to this, this Canyon. And I said, ah, we can't, um, because the way the wind it's, there's no way to hunt that the way the wind is. So by that evening, the wind had kind of started to die down and we were able to work with it a little bit. And we went to this spot and we sat there for four hours, I think, just waiting for him to show up. And we had a soybean field behind us and Canyon in front of us. And we're waiting for him to come up out of the Canyon into the soybean in the evening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, got to a point where we we're like, okay, it's time to call it a day. And we, we kind of snuck out of there and, and he started to bugle. And I don't know that it was him. It felt like it was um, kind of this herd bull in that area. And so I felt like you know, we, we put this bull to bed there. He's there. We didn't booger him. Nothing's n- no big deal. So we snuck out of there. We got up the next morning. Wind was more cooperative. We go to that same exact spot that we were just at the night before. And the fog was thick. It was super thick. And uh, shooting light was like 7 a.m. that day. And a bull walks out in the fog and he's by himself. There's nothing else around. He's kind of milling around. And dad and I both agreed. We're like, that's, that's him, you know, get out Hmm. and get comfortable and get get set up for your shot. And I got sat down. Uh, and this bull too, he, he was acting a little funny. Um, he'd kind of run away from us and then he'd kind of run toward us and he was kind of doing these different things. And dad was, and I was agreeing with dad. He was like, something's up. He's, he's winding us, um, get comfortable, take your shot. And so I did, I got set up. I took my shot. Um, I'll back up a second. Dad ranges him and he says he's at three fifty, and my heart just sang. Oh I was, no. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> I was like, I've, I was like, I've been here before. This is like, <laughs> here's the time to redeem myself. And, yep. uh, this, this time around I was hunting with a seven mag and uh i took a comfortable shot really good broadside shot absolutely smoked him and double lunged him and he he walked 10 yards and bit the dirt and uh was feeling so good about it was so proud about everything and uh, we got up there to him in the soybeans and it wasn't the herd bull oh no It was a bull that was quite a lot younger and quite a lot smaller. And oh, uh, hey, he looked awesome to me, man. When I saw was, that picture, why, and that's why it's hard for me. Like I'm, like I'm not complaining. Um, that that was my honest feeling when we saw him. My stomach just sank, and it was. I was going through my head, like, what happened? What's going on? Like, why wasn't this what I thought it was? And I realized why he was darting around and acting so funny. It wasn't me. It was a bull. It was another bull that was in- <laughs> sure. And I knew he was, he was on thin ice. Yeah. So it, <laughs> all, it was all adding up in my head. I was like, Oh no. And, uh, but he, he was, a he, yeah, like I said, not complaining. Um, and, uh, when I threw a tape on him, he grossed about two seventy, and, That's uh, so the, cool. it was here's, I've been thinking about this cause I'm like, man, you know, that seems really ungrateful to be like, Oh, I didn't get my, my wall, my trophy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys that that would love to just kill an elk period let alone 250 inch elk and uh, you know am i being selfish and being ungrateful but here's here's what it's like it's like going to iowa and shooting 135 inch deer is that a good deer for most of the (laughs) country you bet it is Is right for iowa Eh. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The ground shrinkage so, can happen. <laughs> so that that's what the situation was. He he's a, he was a, and, and honestly, what I'm most proud of the whole thing is is my shot, my 350 yard shot center. Yeah, punch. that's no joke. That's and, no joke. Uh, I, I, because man, when dad ranged him and said he's at 350, I thought, crap, I've, oh, I've man. once before and it didn't go right. Yeah. And, but it, it worked out perfect. I got to do it with my dad. A lot of people, you know, don't, don't get a hunt with their dads. And my mm-hmm. dad's still, yeah, that's true. Uh, he's still, he's still my hunting partner and uh, he's still got the energy to do it. And it's just, it, it really was picture perfect. You know, when you think about basically 24 hours into my hunt, 15 minutes into the second day, I filled my tag. Mm-hmm. It's a great bull, put 500 pounds of meat in my freezer of just corn fat elk. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to have a great head to hang on the wall. And and the other thing, too, is the landowners um, in Nebraska, you're, uh, for, no, uh, for non-landowners, it's once in a lifetime if you fill. So <clears throat> I think that will change over time because there's just so many. They're sure. issuing more yeah. tags. But for, mm-hmm. for most people in Nebraska – when you fill your tag, you're done. And uh, mm. for landowners, it's not that way. I have to sit out for a few years before I can start putting in to draw again. But I'll, I'll be able to draw again in probably mm-hmm. yep. years. I'll have another wow. tag. So, um, yeah, it was just it, it was it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. It was, and like you said, the, I, I didn't mention where we. Well, I did mention that you know we. Uh, where we were at we had soybean field right behind us in canyon right in front of us and that's what had happened he'd stepped out right onto the edge of that soybean field mm. and that's where i shot him and uh it is the picture is uh odd <laughs> i, I love thing. it though i love it it's <laughs> such a i think it just captures what it is it's yeah. it's elk hunting in nebraska which yeah. a large part of nebraska is ag land and and honestly it's an example it's why that is why elk probably will not be accepted. Free ranging elk will not be accepted to return to Iowa and Caleb in my lifetime. I mean, right. I'm guessing is because of that negative, you know, that conflict yeah. of the wildlife and ag business, you know, yeah. like it's, uh, well, they're, yeah. <clears throat> they're hard on, they're hard on crops and so hard on it, man. So yep. hard on it. The damage they do to crops, which <sighs> our specific enterprise here, um, where I'm at it is beef. We don't, we don't farm at all. It's just, mm-hmm. and the ranch that's, um, that where my dad grew up, where I was elk hunting is the same, same thing. That's their enterprises is, is beef. They're not into farming business. Mm-hmm. It does. Those, those elk create a lot of heartburn with farmers because, the, what they can do to a cornfield is mm. unbelievable. I mm. mean, just not. Well, they're they're bigger. a herd. Yeah, they're a herd animal. You know, like deer yeah. do a lot of damage to crops as it is, but they're not really like a true herd animal. Like the you know you'll have your doe family groups that might be mm-hmm. you know five ten in, you know individuals, but but. Elk, I mean, you can have, like you were saying, when you're hunting those cows, you know, 30 to 40 oh, know, yeah. animals that are pushing a thousand pounds right. and that like to wallow on top oh, of that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it looks like crop circles out there when they get out there and they get to fighting and pushing corn over. It's like crop circles. It's just, mm-hmm. it's wild what they can do. And last year, 
they had in a neighboring unit, they got, there got to be enough complaint that they did have a depredation uh, season specifically That's for right. this. Yeah. And they yeah. did open it up to non-residents. I remember uh, that. That was, the, that was the July one, right? It, yep. And they, I, there supposedly there was 30 elk in that unit and they issued a pile of tags to try and completely remove them. Cows, calves, everything. Hmm. And I don't think they were successful at all. And I think, and this is my opinion that, the game in parks just threw them a bone to try and appease upset farmers um, sure. about because I don't and the pressure. Yeah. The, the pressure will push those elk out for sure. But yeah. um, I don't remember how many they ended up harvesting, but um, I don't, I, I think, like I said, I think it was just, I don't know that it actually is going to do anything. I think they just did it to try and appease the people that were upset about it. But yeah. Well, but, it's, uh, yeah. it's a great, it's a great issue to follow, you know, because I think it is a little glimpse into what's it going to take for places like Iowa, Illinois. Um, I really think that Iowa is going to be the last state to get them back. Um, I think Illinois will get them, you know, within our lifetime, Caleb, there's a lot, really? especially in the Southern, the Southern half of the state. Oh yeah. Well, there's maybe, a lot less. I shouldn't a lot say the southern half, but the southern third, the yeah. southern third of the state. Yep. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of habitat down there. Yep. Um, you know, you got Shawnee National Forest area. That's you know, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of space for them in a few places in the state, but in Iowa, I mean, you know, from the Mississippi to the Missouri, you yeah. know, it's almost all, yeah, all uh, heavily right. cropped ground and and. But, you know, Nebraska's kind of figuring out, they're doing the hard work right now, figuring out how to, you know, make room for both things, you know, farming and these elk. And hopefully Iowa, Illinois, you know, Indiana, Ohio, and even some of the states that already are, are, you know, having them there like Nebraska – Hopefully they can all find. Sorry, I got a combine going past the house right now. Uh, there's, there's a. That's how you know you're in Iowa. There you uh, go. <laughs> but um, the, you know, hopefully they can kind of set the tone and pass on those tips and tricks that they learned how to have both things. And you know, maybe we can start to see elk, you know, repopulating everywhere where they once were. And I think that would be, that'd be a huge win for, you know, as a, somebody who's truly a conservationist at heart and, and by work and, you know, I want to see that, but also just as a hunter, you know, having those opportunities that our ancestors got to enjoy, um, that, that'd be really important to me as I'm sure it would be to you guys as well. And I think it'd be phenomenal. Yep. So, well, uh, as we wrap this one up here, Nate, um, could you like maybe describe, I mean, we've really kind of done it throughout the conversation. We've talked about the mountain lions. We've talked about the mule deer and whitetails and, and of course, the elk and, and even the predator side of things. But what's, what's your hope, like, you know, 100 years from now, 
which my coworker Nicholas said that uh, he was listening to a podcast the other day, and he said anyone who's in their 30s now, this guy was like a he's like a doctor who's working on, um, you know immortality for humans basically like what are the what are the common causes of death and how do we fix that um this guy on this podcast said that people in their 30s need to start planning on living to be 120 and (laughs) and uh which is a crazy thing to think about and also i can see I, i can see that i mean look at like uh all of our grandparents age you know like when they were kids people were still farming with horses and now, you know, you got things like Neuralink that they're talking about where they're going to, you know, insert technology mm-hmm. into your brain so that you can, like, scroll the Internet with your eyes. And yeah, no, uh, thank that's, you. Yeah, 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 no, thanks. But, um, but like, maybe, maybe so. But 100 years from now, Nate, what do you hope hunting looks like in Nebraska? Do you hope, you know, new species or or expand, you know, things expanded, things drawn back on, like, yeah. what, like, what do you hope? And, and maybe I'll add into this hunting and wildlife. Um, uh, you know, as far as, e- even as far as the mountain lions, whoops, sorry about that. Even the mountain lion deal. Um, once I, once I kind of learned a little bit more about them and, uh, m- my big thing was I want to have a, a huntable population of them. That's, that's mm. what I, cause that's what yeah. I was asking the game and parks when we were collecting all this data. Cause I believe that data is useless if you're not going to do something with it. And that's what I asked. What's the the purpose of all this gathering this data, studying these mountain lions with collars? Like, what, why do this? And he, he said, well, we want to have a huntable population, but we don't know how many we have. And this is the start of it. So I believe things need to be kept in check. Um, and I, I don't understand why there is, um, why there are people out there that, you know, that they believe in nature doing, letting nature do what nature does, you know, like don't, mm-hmm. don't infringe on wolves killing elk or whatever it is. Why do we have to take ourselves out of that equation? Mm, like, I great don't understand point. why we can't be a part of that. Cause great point. You know, you know, what doesn't manage elk populations is, is wolves like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> they're they're going to, they're going to kill until their, their heart's extent. So, my point is, is like, I want to be a part of that management so that they're in check. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, that's, that's what I want from the mountain lions, from the deer, for the mule, the muley deer, the, the elk, all of that. Let's do what we can to, to keep these in check because it is a renewable resource. You know, mm, let's, yep. let's not overhunt them, but let's not let the resource go to waste, you know, and it's not, yeah. I'm a sportsman. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like the hunt. That's why I'm in it. That doesn't mean I let things go to waste, but you know, I've, I've met hunters that could not care less about the, the head on the wall and the trophy yeah. and they're in it for the meat. That's totally fine. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm a sportsman. I'm in it there in it for the experience and for the hunt. And, and that's what I want out of it. And, sure. and I, you, you gotta, we gotta keep these things in check and, it's something I do with our turkeys. We have a lot of turkeys on the ranch and I manage for that. I'm trapping like crazy mm-hmm. uh, in the fall season to help with that predation. And, and yep. our numbers are going through the roof on turkey. That's pot. awesome. But it's just stuff like that. That's just an example of, of we, you know, we have to do our part to keep things in check and to manage it well so that it's not overhunted and so that it's not underhunted. And uh, that that's what I would like to see. I would like to see... Um, 
and there are some things you know that you can argue like i, I don't know that we have room for but um <laughs> but as far as the elk i i like seeing them here i understand being in agriculture i'm not on the farming side of things but i am in agriculture and i understand the heartburn that the elk mm-hmm. have it would be really easy for people to just be like well if you don't like farming then get out of it and that's not the right attitude and no and, uh, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, you know what, if it, the elk aren't bothering me, you know, it's like, I, I really <laughs> like having the elk. So yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to exterminate them just because they cause hardship for people, you know, keep them in check and keep, keep them in check. But yeah, no, well said. I lo- I like that perspective. I like how nuanced it is. You know, we, a lot of times we think we all have to say the same things and, 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 uh, you know, say the quote unquote right things, which is, <laughs> oh, I'm all about the meat, man. The antlers, you can have them, you know, and you're right. Some people truly do think that I've talked before about a guest that I had on here and he was an old timer. And I asked him to, uh, like, this is back when I'd post pictures on the, on the website. It just got to be too much work, but for every episode I'd, I'd ask for grip and grins from the guest. And I asked this guy, and I mean, he's killed many moose, many elk, all kinds of whitetails and mule deer through the years. The guy's been hunting since he was like, you know, five years old and he grew up in Montana. And, and he's like, he's like, Oh, I don't know if I got anything that you can use. I'd be like, oh, that's okay. Just maybe, you know, go stand by a, you know, shoulder mount in your house, you know? Yeah. And, and he's like, uh, I, I, I don't have any. I'm like, what do you mean? You've shot all these animals. He's like, yeah. And I was like, well, don't you have like the skull caps around or something? He's like, I guess I've just kind of thrown them away through the years. Oh my and I'm gosh. like, I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> this guy's got like the most pure motives, yeah. uh, I, you know, as far yeah. as being a, a meat hunter goes. But, but yeah, there's a sportsman side to it. And we want that. We want that to stay around for that reason. Um, and just I, hunting is something that I think when you take it as seriously as us three do, mm-hmm. which I think most people who are willing to maybe invest one year of kind of like going hard after hunting, you start to realize it's something you need, you know, yeah. like uh, yeah. when, when hunting season ends, like there is some relief to it in the sense that like, okay, I don't have to feel this guilt. Like every time I get off work that I'm not absolutely flying out to the tree stand (laughs) to be out there every night, you know, or, you know, like there, there's some relief to that or just like the super, you know, you know, what's anti hunting going off of daylight savings. That is anti hunting. (laughs) You now can't hunt after work and cause it's dark and you got to wake up an hour earlier to get out to get out there for the morning hunt, you know, it's just, it's anti-hunting. But anyways, um, you know, there is some relief to that. However, there's a real dread too. It's like, and yeah. sheds definitely help, <laughs> definitely Amen. help ease the hey, pain. That They definitely help. And turkey season definitely helps. Or if you're doing a, a spring bear hunt somewhere, that definitely helps. But like when the fall hunting season ends, it's just like, I got to wait a whole year for that. And that, that, that is, I mean, you, the best way to describe it is when you go hiking, you know what I mean? Like all your non hunting (laughs) friends are like, Oh, we're going to go to the state park. And you're like, yeah, I love going there. 
but it is a hollow feeling. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm well, over here enjoying the view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, you know, this is a lot more fun when you have a bow in your hand or a rifle in your hand. And, uh, but I mean, that all goes back to the fact that it's something that, you know, we just feel totally compelled to do and more complete while we are doing it as a human being. And I think you said it so well, Nate, where it's like, you know, we view this as natural for wolves. We view this as natural for grizzlies. We view this as natural for mountain lions and coyotes and bobcats and bald eagles and on and on down the list. What about us forward eye facing humans that are built to be predators and, uh, you know, yeah. to, to remove us from that equation is it's a crime. It's like having a bird dog that you don't hunt, you know, it's like that, yeah. that dog is, is meant to be out there. It's, it was bred for that purpose. And you, once you start hunting with them, you realize they're never, they're never as happy as, as they are when they're out hunting. And it's because they're doing what they're meant to do. And we, as humans, I think those of us, fortunate enough to get to experience it and and get really plugged into it it's the same way we're Mm -hmm. we're doing what what we are we are built to do you know well and 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 a lot of a lot of my my worldview too is a part of my faith and uh i mean i can't i can't not address anything without through the without being through the lens of my faith and and I know people don't believe what I believe. However, what's driving me is like we were made to have dominion. And, and I, I mm-hmm. believe deeply in that. And, and a part of that is management of the resources. And, mm-hmm. and you can turn it into a whole theological debate about what does that mean to have dominion spiritually, mm-hmm. all that. I've been to seminary. I've written papers on it. Like I know about that discussion, but I believe that. The point is, you know, like that, that we were made to manage this thing of creation Mm -hmm. and, and, and and to manage it well. And, and that takes, that takes a lot of work because nature doesn't manage things well. Like (laughs) it doesn't at all. Like there will, that will go away if you leave it to nature to take care of itself. Yeah. And, uh, and I believe that is our job, not just for the sportsman side of thing, but, uh, but for the resource in, in general, um, we, we were made to have dominion over this thing and to, to manage it well and, and to manage it in a way that glorifies God. Yeah. Yeah. I heard somebody say once, and I don't know if they were, you know, Caleb and I were believers as well. And yeah. It's interesting about that part of the Bible where that verse comes from is very close to the part of the Bible where God gave man his first job. Yeah, that was to keep yeah. the gar to keep the garden right to take care of it to 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 yep. manage it, and I heard somebody say super knowledgeable guy, uh, probably one of the most knowledgeable and practically experienced um, people in the prairie uh, industry. He um, manages a a prairie um, over in Western Iowa, and uh, he said dominion doesn't mean dominate right Uh, right and and uh and like i said i don't know if he's a believer i don't know you know you know what what religion or if any religion you know that what he he was it was it was just like a, a good reminder to people who uh are of the christian faith that 
we have a responsibility to this this world that God made, and uh, we have a role within it. And um, it, yeah. it is it is that of a manager, a keeper, a somebody who wants the best for it. And right. and uh, you know, I agree. I think that's a great totally. It's a great point to end on. Yeah, excellent. So couldn't have said it better. I mean, just yeah, the purpose. You know, I've been I've been thinking, we'll discuss that maybe when the on the next one or something. Kent, we'll discuss. Well, what hey, happened the last I week, have but, something. Uh, I have something interesting in the works. I don't. I don't want to promise anything yet, um, but uh, I talked to a guy who uh, I think he, I, I don't know if he does anymore, but he was a, a professor of a seminary, maybe even multiple seminaries. And um, I've ever since I really got into hunting, I wondered, you know, like, what is, what does the Bible talk about with hunting? You know, what does the Bible say about hunting? And maybe what does God think about hunting? Yeah. And, uh, um, so I'm having this guy, we're kind of talking back and forth a little bit, seeing if, uh, he's going to be willing to come on and, uh, we just hit that topic. I mean, I just think nice. it'd be such a unique, interesting topic that I, I yeah. got to imagine even people who aren't Christians would be, uh, interested in, you know, you know, that they're pro most people are familiar with the Bible, right? And what does, what are references to hunting in the Bible and what do they mean? And you know, what, what can, what do we do with that? So, so, uh, yeah. that like could that. be coming up very soon. Um, I'm working on it and, uh, if it doesn't work with this person, I'm going to try and track down somebody else. So, um, but this guy knows his stuff. He, he, he is a theologian in, in every sense. And, uh, he's a great communicator too. He is, he, I actually had him for a professor, uh, when Very I was in cool. college working on my undergrad and, um, uh, actually that's all I have. I have two bachelor's degrees. I do not have any master's degrees, unfortunately, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, anyways, this guy was awesome. He's one of my favorite professors and I haven't talked to him in a long, long time, but, uh, I'm hoping he'll come on and, and talk about it, but you bring up some great points there, Nate. And thank you so much for joining us from, yeah. uh, from beautiful yeah. Nebraska there. This is, this has been third. Th it was even better than I was, than I was looking forward to. It was yeah, just good. really fun. And we got some plans in the work to hang out with Nate. Uh, hopefully this uh, coming spring. Yeah. Um, go yes. do something that all three of us are obsessed with, which is finding antlers and We're sitting around and, that fire. He's been around. Hello. Yeah, that's right. That just looks to be so there awesome. All night. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It looks awesome. Good. It's good. Well, but, I really enjoyed your podcast. I've loved listening to it, you know, and I, when I stumbled across it, I, you know, I think it was probably a topic that caught my eye, but because uh, I don't, on one hand, I don't, I don't think of myself as a first gen hunter. I come from a long line of hunters. Um, I, I grew up hunting. However, I grew up hunting two things deer during rifle season and calling coyotes. And that was it. And it was about 2015 that I started hunting like, everything else um oh that's awesome man so so i do i do resonate with the whole first gen thing because there's a lot that i did not learn from my dad sure <laughs> and the rest of it so sure no i love that that's awesome i, and, I love and, your podcast it's, it's, I, it's great I, I, that that's humbling to hear and and much appreciated and you've been a great supporter of the show for basically since the beginning yeah. um uh, you're one of the first listeners to reach out to me and, and I've always appreciated you for that. And, cool. and, uh, 
Yeah, you know, I think Caleb has said this many times. Everybody's got a first-gen story of some mm-hmm. sort, you know, yep. and that goes back to all the different wrinkles there are within hunting, chasing new species, um, trying new methods of take, um, all of it, right? It, it all can put us into that first-gen part. And you know what? It's been cool growing through the years, you know. We're coming up this coming June will be four, like, calendar years. That's awesome. Of – of running this show and I've grown as a hunter, you know, like that's almost doubling my hunting experience since when I started, you know? And so it's at first, remember the old tip of the day or the, yeah. Was it tip of the day? Is that what we called it in those first, probably like, I don't know, 30 episodes, 40 episodes, there'd be like a commercial break almost in the middle. And I'd either I or Brandon (laughs) would have some kind of tip, which we need to get Brandon back on the show. Life's just been so busy for him. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, now it's much more like it's it's grown it's it's changed as it should you know as hopefully but there's still a strong 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 sense of doing you know figuring this out and and trying to trying to get better every season so now uh really appreciate you guys and listeners really appreciate you <clears throat> just had another seems like I had two listeners reach out to me <clears throat> just this last week. That is the best part. That is the best part. I'm telling you, you know, yes, I get paid to, you know, have sponsorships and stuff like that on the show. And that's all great. And everything that helps pay for hunting trips, like uh, going to Nebraska here soon. But um, <clears throat> the very best part is you, the listeners um, just, when you guys reach out and especially when uh, you tell me about how maybe something helped you find some success or pointed you in the right direction of talking to somebody else that helped you find success, man, that is, that is what really makes this feel worthwhile. You know, now, of course, talking to the awesome guests like Nate here and uh, co-hosts like Caleb or Alex or Brandon, or even my brother, Jake uh, from time to time. um, That's awesome too. But uh, and, and that's, that's right up there at the, at the top of what makes it so fun to do these podcasts, but really we all do this to share our story with, with the listeners and hopefully share some information that can help them. And, and, you know, a lot of times when I ask people to do a podcast, they'll be like, well, I don't really feel like a, an expert on anything. It's like, dude, we care about perspective mm-hmm. as much as we care about, about, your experience level because perspective helps us figure things out. You know, it doesn't mean that the person on here is necessarily, they, they have the solution, but they do have a, an idea that they have thought out and probably is going to present something in a way that most of us have never thought about before and helps us get closer to, you know, having the right viewpoint. And so, I think uh, I think that that's huge too through all these years of, of doing the show and and this will be episode 183. Um, we actually have a hunt update that I'm gonna release right after this uh, for tomorrow that Caleb uh, sent me last week. <laughs> Maybe so, outdated now. <laughs> well, we, it, yeah. it'll be we'll have we'll have that story the other story yeah. we referenced earlier on a future hunt update, but um, that'll be tomorrow's picking bones and. Uh, it's just been it's been so much fun to to go through all this stuff though but but um yeah so anyways 
we do have to talk about our sponsors, our partners that we're very proud to have. Uh, you may have noticed I've been sharing some stuff. If you're following me on social media from Spartan Forge. I do need to announce that the price is going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, I know. Nobody wants to nobody wants to pay more, right, for things. However, it's a good thing in this case because um, all the new features that have been added to Spartan Forge here really with this last, it's almost like an update and a half. You know, there's like the huge update, and then it's kind of like some other things have, have trickled in along with it. Um <clears throat> The Blue Force Tracker. I did not really understand how that worked until I started using it. You guys have to use that if you have a hunting buddy. Um, or even just somebody like a friend that you want to look over your your um, e-scouting stuff. I used to do that all the time when I was first starting out. I just knew these people who understood whitetail hunting a lot better than I would. And I'd screenshot or send them waypoints from my, um, you know, my online mapping and uh, get advice from them. Well, with the Blue Force Tracker, if you know somebody else, you have a hunting buddy who's a Spartan Forge user, um, you can add them to a property, like draw a perimeter around it and, or, you know, maybe a piece of public land and you add them to that area and they can see every waypoint that you have saved in there. You know how handy that is when you guys are going to see or going to hunt the same piece or like, you know, planning a hunting trip together like Caleb and I are? Mm-hmm. That is a game changer where you can basically log on to the same screen from two different devices and know exactly what the other person is talking about instead of just the old, you know, slow sharing each individual waypoint and um it's it's just it's dynamite it's a total game changer so definitely check that out you get that in the full version so yes you can still i believe get the free version which is just like one or two maybe three mapping layers property owner information which is huge you got to pay a lot of money for that on most other uh apps out there but um with the full version which you can still i believe get for a monthly fee or now 59.99 for the yearly fee which is still very inexpensive when you consider that you get all 50 states or at least the 48 lower states the lower 48 states um uh, that's way less expensive than the other options out there and uh you get that blue force tracker plus you get the lidar layers you get 3d view all that stuff that's super handy for figuring stuff out from an e-scouting standpoint so go to spartan forge you can find a link for them in the show notes or even at uh, my link tree on instagram one of the top links there click on it and get yourself going right away with that also you need to talk to alex gruen from east to west hunts if you have some big hunting plans that you want to uh flush out um so many people want to just do the DIY thing, which is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I do that. But um, if you do not have the time to do a like, I mean, this is where we all have to be honest with ourselves. How much time are we going to have? How much energy are we going to have to put in the effort required to put together a really good hunt plan for ourselves? If the answer is, yeah, I think I can get, you know, like 60% of what needs to be done to do that. Well, 
when the three of us were in school, 60% was an F. <laughs> and uh, so if you can give yourself a 60% uh, effort to putting, you know, towards putting together a good hunt plan, I would say that probably looks like having maybe two or three pieces of public land identified that you could go hunt and maybe, you know, 10 to 15 waypoints for spots that look good. That's probably a 60% effort. Um, Alex will give you a 100% effort. He's the kid that you could give a little bit of money to and he'd go, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That's cheating. Uh, but it's the, it's like partnering up with a smart kid in class for the group work, right? All of us are involved in education. That's a great, a great way to put it. Uh, you're partnering up with a smart kid, you know, to, to help you get a good grade on the lab report or whatever. That's what working with Alex is like. He does all the legwork. He knows the people to talk to. He's got all the resources figured out. And he's got the gear to rent you because it takes a ton of gear to do some of these hunts, especially as it gets later in the season and the weather gets really nasty and the earth just gets harder to survive on. Um, Alex can can help take care of you there as well. So go to eastwesthunts.com. Request a free consultation. Yes, it's free. You get to talk to Alex, have his ear, and uh, figure out if he's going to be helpful for you. Or um, he'll even tell you if he thinks that, like, this isn't what you need. He'll tell you that. He's not going to try and, you know, take your take your money for something that you don't actually need. He's going to make sure it works for you. And uh, you can save 10% by telling him you heard about it on this podcast. Be like, hey, Alex, I heard about First or uh, East West Hunts on the First Gen Hunter podcast, you'll save yourself 10% of that fee for uh, booking anything with him. So definitely do that. Again, uh, talk to Alex, go to eastwesthunts.com. And then finally, uh, you want to get quality taxidermy work after you've harvested your trophy. And uh, I truly mean that. Like bad taxidermy can really spoil the happy ending on an awesome hunting story. Um, you get, you know, some like bug eyed, uh, looking thing, or, you know, the, the, the three places you, you see messed up taxidermy. uh, Sam, uh, Gaylord, the guy who started, uh, old barn taxidermy actually taught me this while I was at the, sh- while I was in the showroom, he showed it to me on my own buck. He's like, Here's how you can see if you have good quality taxidermy. We start right here at the nose, then you go to the eyes, and then you go to the ears. And he's like, "Those, you're you're gonna just know right away if it's a quality job by how those like the that three step view of that shoulder mount looks." And old barn taxidermy gets it right. They don't have the loose skin hanging you know, or tucked up under the ears. They don't have the, the bulging eyes or the, the weird shaped nose, the overstuffed nose, you know, like the weird shaped mold in the nose, that kind of thing. It's all done with the greatest level of detail. And, um, I love my mounts and my wife even likes my mounts, which is she's, she's from new England. So, you know, they got that little, they, they like, you know, the, they do the whole pinkies out thing, you know, when they like drink their tea and stuff. But, uh, they, you know, my wife lets me put, I'm not kidding you guys. Let's me put my two shoulder mounts that I have up in our living room. Caleb's seen it mm-hmm. and, uh, they look great. They look like works of art up there. I get a lot of compliments on them and, um, people uh, like to come see them. And every day I bet I spend, you know, I don't 
sit in that room a ton, but I bet I spend, you know, maybe two hours in that room every day. And I'd say I probably spend a good 20, 25 minutes staring at those, those two bucks every single day. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. And, uh, it's because I love looking at them. There, there's something I, I just feel so fortunate to have and, and old barn taxidermy did a great job memorializing them for me. So go to old barn taxidermy. Uh, you can ship stuff to them. Then they will taxidermy anything you send them. Um, they've, they've done it all. Sam has been in the business for, I believe nearly four decades and, uh, they do over 500 white tail shoulder mounts a year. And, uh, they do all kinds of muleys, elk, mountain lions, um, bears, turkeys, fish, all of it, literally all of it. So send your work to old barn taxidermy, and then please be sure you can support this show by telling them that the first gen hunter podcast uh, is the one who got you going to Old Barn. Please do that. They want to know that our partnership's good. I want to know that too. So again, thank you, Nate. Thank you, Caleb. And thank you to Absolutely. our listeners for, for uh, being here tonight. Uh, just really appreciate all of you. Until next time, take care and take someone hunting.